You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We're going to be beginning, Lord willing, today um, a series on the parables. Um, Sinclair will be continuing beginning next Lord's Day evening uh, his study of, of uh, Peter, um, but uh, in the mornings and this evening we're going to have a series on the parables, and so I'll be beginning today in Matthew 13. Tonight Isaac will uh, preach from the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Uh, next Lord's Day morning Isaac will continue with Prodigal Son from Luke 15. Then I'll be back on the 19th of July with the Pharisee and the tax collector. And then again on the 26th with the minus and the talents. On August 2nd, Tom will speak on Mark 21, the parable of the talents. On August 9th, John Ferguson will speak about the ten virgins uh, from Matthew 25. And then David will be back in August 16th and 23 preaching on the growing seed and the fig tree to conclude the series. So it'll be an extended series on the parables, particularly in the morning worship service, as I said, uh, that uh, Sinclair will continue with the series on First Peter uh, beginning next Lord's Day uh, in the evenings. It falls on me to not only preach on this particular parable from Matthew 13, which we'll read in a second, but also to kind of set the stage for all of these parables and give you a kind of some handles that you can understand what are parables and how do we look at them and and those kind of things. And so that when we get to the specifics of each individual parable, you'll understand a little bit more what's going on with them. And particularly with parables and the one that I'll be talking about this morning, they're familiar. And there's always a danger with a passage of scripture that's familiar. You can read it and think, I know this, I got this, it's, it's okay. But parables are tricky, especially all of scripture. We need to be very, very careful how we handle it, but particularly parables. And we need to pay attention to what's going on, what's being said, what's not being said. And so don't let the familiarity lull you, uh, but pay attention. With the parable that we'll be looking at this morning, the parable of the sower, it's found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Repetition in scripture is not accidental. God does that for a reason. And particularly this parable. This is the first of the parables. It's a parable that Jesus uses to explain what parables are and why he talks about parables. And in all three of the Gospels, it's repeated almost the same, which is unusual. There's usually some variance in the various presentations of the Gospels. But here, at the outset of this ministry of parables, this parable in particular is repeated three times. It's important. What Jesus is saying as he preaches this is, listen up. This is the first of a series of parables, not only that we're going to be looking at, but in Jesus' own ministry. And in this parable, the important thing for us to look at, and we'll be spending a lot of time on this morning, is why is it that Jesus is using parables? He could have talked in a lot of other ways. And so we look at that in this particular parable. As we look at this, we're going to look at the setting First of all, it's always important to look at the setting of a passage of Scripture, Uh, and so we'll look at that. Then we'll go on to the question 
that the apostles or the disciples pose to Jesus after they've heard this parable. Then we'll spend a considerable amount of time on Christ's answer to them in regard to that question. And then we'll close with Christ's explanation of the parable. So we'll have a setting. We'll talk about uh, the parable itself, just mention it, and then the question, Christ's answer, and the explanation. Turn with me in your Bibles to page 980 in the Pew Bibles, excuse me, 978. Matthew chapter 13. I'm not used to doing this, and so I had prepared slides with all of the scripture to have for you nicely and forgot. I left it at home. So you'll have to follow along in your Bibles. Oh, arduous task that is. Hear now God's word from Matthew chapter 13. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to the parable of what the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed 
that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, now as we come into your presence that you've bid us to do, we come longing to hear your voice speak your word to us. But our ears are, our ears are hard of hearing. So we pray, dear Lord, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would help us to hear your word, that we might rejoice in it, and that it might produce fruit in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name, our King. Amen. As we look at the context of this parable, you have to look back in the Gospel of Matthew, a gospel about the kingdom, and all that's been said to this point is pointing to the fact that with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom has come. The birth of Jesus, it's his royal lineage that's portrayed for us. John the Baptist comes preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. Jesus takes up that same message when John is put in jail, saying the kingdom of God is at hand, it's come. He begins to heal people in demonstrations of power. He stills the storm. He casts out demons. In the preceding chapter, chapter 12, he heals a man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees accuse him of violating the Sabbath. You have to go back to creation. When God had created everything, then he rested. And here is the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus comes and establishes his lordship over creation with that. He continues on to heal And to cast out demons. And they say, oh, you're doing that because you're in league with Beelzebub. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. I've bound the strong man. I've entered his house. And I'm plundering it. All that Matthew is saying is the king is here. The kingdom has come. And it's in that context that we need to understand the parables. This is the message of the king. It's about the kingdom. If you don't get anything else that I say, remember that. Okay? And you'll understand not only this parable, but all of the parables. But we have to look at what it is that Jesus means when he uses parables. But this context of the coming of the king and the coming of the kingdom needs to be set in a much broader context, the context of all of Scripture. If you go back to Genesis, God created all things, and it was good. There was order. There was fellowship with the Creator. Everything was blessed. Then comes the fall. Adam and Eve sin. Death enters. Sin enters. Pain enters. Animosity enters. Death enters. There's destruction of that order. 
man and woman who were to be God's vice regents are now his enemies. Instead of extending his kingdom, they're in rebellion against him. And so begins a process of God redeeming a people for himself, of restoring that whole of creation that was broken, that was destroyed by the fall. Long epics of the coming of the prophets who foretell of the coming of the Messiah who would restore all things. The king who would come and restore God's kingdom. And all of the people of the Old Testament looking forward to that day. But with the coming of Jesus, it's there. And you have to get the sense of that to understand parables. These are not little moral trite sayings about what you should do or not do. These are messages of the king who has come to reestablish God's order in his creation, to restore all things. And parables are messages of insight into what the kingdom is and who the king is and how we're to live in that kingdom. A new day has broken in with the coming of Jesus, the king. The kingdom has come, and parables are messages of that kingdom. It's in that context that we have to understand the parables that Jesus speaks, and in particular this parable here of the sower. It's a context saturated with kingdom expectations. And yet it's also a context in which there are critical misunderstandings. The Jews had an expectation of the coming of the kingdom. And so when Jesus comes and speaks parables, he's not only telling them what the kingdom is like, but he's also correcting their misunderstandings of that kingdom. So the parables are meant to address that situation by both declaring and veiling the coming of the kingdom. As you look at this parable in verses 3 to 9, simply that we've just read, and I'm not going to go back over that. It's a parable that hopefully you're very familiar with. A sower, a farmer comes. I should probably have David Miller come up and do this. He's the only one of us that knows really how to do that. And sows seed in, in, in different places. And there's all kinds of discussion as to whether in the ancient Near East they plowed first and then scattered seed, or whether they just scattered the seed and then plowed, and we'll leave that debate. But it's a picture of a sower sowing a seed, sowing seed, and of four different kinds of soils or responses or people and how they respond to the Word of God and the different responses that the Word of God gets. So you have to understand what Jesus is trying to do here. It's a message about different heart responses to the Word of God. And as he gets to the end of telling this parable in verse 9, he says, whoever has ears, let them hear. What's that mean? (laughs) It's like, if you've got ears, duh, don't you hear? Well, the Hebrew word for hear means not just let the acoustics, you know, register on your eardrum so that you can get that sensation and register the sound and hear it. It means to obey. If a Hebrew mother said to her child, you hear me, that didn't mean, you know, was it going in your ears? It means... Are you doing what I say? And this word here occurs again and again and again and again in this passage. And Jesus spoke Hebrew. And so it's that play on words when he says this. He who has ears, let him hear. 
doesn't mean just let the sounds register and you goes in and go, oh, yeah, that was kind of nice. It's the implied messages, are you doing what this says? But what this somewhat paradoxical statement means is that there's more involved in this parable than one might initially have thought. Not everything is self-evident. If that were the case, the apostles wouldn't have had come to Jesus and said, what's this mean? Why are you doing this? If it was just a nice thing to talk about how you're to respond and that's it, they would have understood that. But there's more involved. And so Jesus is aware of that and says, if you've got ears to hear, if God has equipped you to hear the message of the parables, listen up. It implies that there are those who have been given the resources, who have the spiritual ears to hear this message. And Jesus is calling us to listen to that. Verse 10, we have the disciples' question. And it's very important. A lot of times people want to jump over. They just want to read the parable, jump over this question and Jesus' answer to it, and get to the explanation. And then the explanation is just, what are you supposed to do in response? But it's important here that we understand this question that the disciples ask. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this question of the disciples and Jesus' response. We also need to note here that Matthew gives more space to Christ's answer to this question than he does to the interpretation of the parable. So if you're just looking at the text itself, this is the most important thing, this question and Jesus' answer to it, not the parable itself. It's because this question and Jesus' answer pertain to all of the parables, not just this one, but all of the parables. So if you want to understand what Isaac's going to say tonight and next Lord's Day and the rest of the series on parables, you have to understand this question and the answer that Jesus gives to that question. The point of this question is not that the form of teaching in parables was unknown to the disciples. The whole book of Proverbs is really parables. The Hebrew word for proverb could be translated parable. It's pithy sayings that cause you to ponder and think about things and cause you to ask questions. The law in the Old Testament says, thus saith the Lord. This is what you have to do. Okay? Thou shalt, thou shalt not. The prophets, that message is, this is what God says. Period. No discussion. Wisdom literature in the Old Testament says, let's talk about this. Let's dialogue. The whole book of Job is constant dialogues. Book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Proverbs, it's questions about life and how we're to live. And that's what parables do. It's wisdom literature in the New Testament. I teach Old Testament, and so when David asked me to do this, I thought, oh, no, this is New Testament. I don't know anything about New Testament. But the redeeming factor of this parable is that it quotes from Isaiah. So there is some Old Testament in here. So we'll get to that in a second. But the, the disciples, were under, they understood parables. From the Old Testament and rabbinic literature, used parables all the time. So it wasn't saying, they weren't asking, Jesus, what are parables? They knew what they were. We may not, but they did. The question is, why are you addressing the people in this way? You're the coming king. Just tell them. Why don't you use some more direct, simple approach. Why are you doing it in parables, this kind of 
idiomatic way, this using metaphors and pictures. Why do you do that? Why is it that you're speaking this way? That's the point of the question that they're asking to Jesus. Had they understood it, Jesus wouldn't have had to explain things. And before we look at Jesus' answer to this question of why he was using parables, we need to take a brief look at, the four, at four major characteristics of parables. And, you know, there's whole courses on this, and so uh, this is going to be brief, even though it will be somewhat involved. First of all, literally, a parable is a form of expression which places two things alongside of one another. That's what the Greek word means, parabole. And it's generally for the sake of comparison. The word parable is often used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for proverb. In the New Testament, however, parables are used almost exclusively in the Gospels. There's only two occurrences of the word outside of the Gospels, and those both occur in the book of Hebrews. And they not only occur just in the Gospels, or primarily, but they're connected with Jesus' teaching. This is the way that Jesus taught with parables. Secondly, when we consider parables, we need to understand that parables, in parables, not every detail expresses some hidden or spiritual or deeper meaning. So don't go off into looking at every little detail of a parable and go, oh, what does that mean? And what does that mean? It's more, what does the whole thing mean? What is Jesus saying by this whole message in a parable? Some parables have more than one major point. Some have even three. But it's a limited focus. Don't get lost in the details. Be asking, what is, this, what is the core message of a parable? Thirdly, parables do two things at once, and I've already touched on this. On the one hand, they serve to reveal certain truths. However, on the other hand, they serve to mask or obscure those same truths. Like the Proverbs of the Old Testament, parables call for a differentiation or a decision which demands faith. It's not just laying it out there saying, this is the way it is. It calls for a differentiation. It calls for you to make a decision. How am I going to respond to this? And that's the intention of a parable, to make you make that decision, to make you think about it. It demands that decision, and that decision demands faith. In particular, as we'll see, they serve as a God-given revelation of the reality and the character of the kingdom of God for believers. But on the other hand, they function to veil the true nature of that kingdom for those who do not believe. And lastly, parables are not given to import to impart independent moral or doctrinal principles. Jesus is not just teaching us little tidbits of doctrinal or moral truth. This is about the kingdom. This is about the rule of the king. That's the core message of all the parables. It's not what we do or don't do so much as this is the message of the king. It's a message about the kingdom. We see that from the fact that most of the parables begin with the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like, and then comes the parable. Jesus introduces almost all of the parables in that way that signals to us these are about the kingdom, the rule of God, 
being reestablished. In other words, they illustrate the character of the kingdom or aspects of the kingdom or some deficiency of understanding concerning the kingdom where they may urge Jesus' followers to watchfulness and expectancy with regard to the kingdom. So now let's look at Christ's answer to this question, why he spoke in parables. That's given for us in verses 11 through 17. And I would say this is the core of this passage. Not the parable itself, but this answer that Jesus gives. And it may seem difficult at first to understand. He draws some fairly sharp distinctions. He cites an unusual passage from Isaiah. And then he contrasts the position of prophets and righteous people in the Old Testament with those who hear the parables today all of which do not seem to have anything to do with parable of the sower. It would be much easier to simply just now drop down to the interpretation and get on with it. (laughs) But we have this bothersome middle portion here where Jesus explains why he's using parables. If we do that, if we drop down, we'll not only miss the point of this particular parable, but all of the parables that will follow. The fact that the explanation of why Jesus spoke in parables is found in all Matthew, Mark, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, excuse me, underscores how important this is. Now, we don't have time to go into all of what Jesus says here, but hopefully we can get some highlights and look at the kingdom differentiation in verses 11 and 12, the citation from Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, in Matthew 13, verses 13 and 15, and then the blessed position or privilege of Christ's followers. First of all, in verses 11 and 12, it's kingdom differentiation. Christ begins his answer by indicating that he is using parables for a specific reason. The use of parables is not accident. They are not just random elements of Jesus' teaching. He could have chosen to teach in any number of ways, but he chose parables, and he chose them specifically. From what's said here in these verses, parables serve basically two functions. First of all, they reveal truths about the kingdom, and secondly, they involve, if not provoke, a differentiation. First of all, they reveal truths about the kingdom. Jesus says, to you is revealed the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Parables reveal knowledge of the kingdom. This is not a knowledge that we can come up with on our own. We don't understand the kingdom of God in our fallen sinful state. It has to be revealed to us. And that's the point of parables, to tell us what the kingdom of God is like. It's above all a knowledge of salvation present in Christ. Christ is the king. With his coming, the kingdom has come. That's what the parables are about. Despite the lack of display of power which the Jews anticipated would accompany the coming of the kingdom, Jesus is saying here that the kingdom has come. This knowledge of the mystery of the kingdom, this insight into the fulfillment begun with Christ, is the great prerequisite for being able to and allowed to understand the parables. Without this knowledge imparted by God's revelation, 
Each parable can be understood in a myriad of ways, each of which misses the point. God has to reveal to us this knowledge of the kingdom if we're to understand the parables. The term translated in the NIV as secrets is actually the word from which we get our word mystery. Mystery is not something completely unknown. It's kind of like a mystery novel. You know, you read a mystery novel, particularly in the summer months. You know, you're going through and you're trying to figure out who did it, who did it, all the way through the book. You know, you're just going through and it could be this person. Then the author throws something at you and you don't understand. Finally, at the end, you go, aha, and it's made known to you. That's what a mystery is. It's not something that remains hidden. It's something that was hidden and over a process becomes revealed. And so Jesus is here using parables to reveal that which was hidden about the kingdom so that the, his disciples would understand it. To them is given the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. Throughout the long ages of the Old Testament, these truths had been hidden, vaguely comprehended, only dimly understood, veiled realities of things yet to come. But with the coming of Christ, the kingdom had come. Those realities had begun to take place before their very eyes. Parables were the means by which Jesus chose to reveal that knowledge of the kingdom. And it's knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The knowledge to which Jesus here is referring is a knowledge of the kingdom. In other words, it's not knowledge of a better life or how to be happy or prosperous. It's knowledge about God's kingdom, about his rule, about his sovereignty over all things. Both expressions, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, refer to God as the sovereign king and to his exercise of rule. Parables must be understood in the context of the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, the one who is bringing all things to fulfillment, the king who had come and with whom the kingdom had come. It's a knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, and it has to do with much, much more than just salvation of souls. It has to do with the reestablishment of God's rule over all of life, every area of life. Politics, art, science, family, morals, economics, our heart's attitudes, the priorities that guide us from day to day. It's about putting God back into the, onto the throne in everything that we do. That's the kingdom of God. But also parables not only reveal truths about the kingdom, they cause or provoke a differentiation. He says, given to you, but not to them. There's a distinction made that Jesus intentionally provokes. This knowledge of the kingdom is not given to everyone equally. Jesus use parables in order to make a differentiation, a distinction. The first thing we need to notice here is these, that the mysteries of the kingdom are given. They are revealed as gifts of God's grace. It's not something people have you know, spent years learning the intricacies of parables and have finally come to a conclusion. These are gifts of God's grace revealed by God to them. That does not mean that the kingdom as the object of prophetic promise and expectation was a mystery unknown to the hearers of the parables. Rather, it's something that we as human beings cannot attain through our own efforts, but have to rely on the revelation of God. 
And that gift, that revelation, involves a differentiation, a distinction. This knowledge of the kingdom is given, Jesus says, to you. That is, to the disciples of Christ, to those who believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who has come to bring in the kingdom. The meaning of the parables can only be understood by those to whom the mysteries of the kingdom have been given to know through faith. Then comes the differentiation. The knowledge of the kingdom is not given to them, to those who do not believe. So Jesus makes a clear differentiation. There are you who believe and them who do not believe. And he adds to that. He deepens to that. And the next verse he says, whoever has will be given more than they who have an abundance and they will have an abundance and whoever does not have even what they have will be taken away from them. Jesus is not accidentally making this distinction. Otherwise he wouldn't have repeated it in a more intense way. He wants to make sure that there's a distinction made in the crowd that are hearing the parables. That's why he speaks them. It calls for a decision. Are they going to believe it? Yes or no? Are they going to believe that he is the king, come, and that he has brought them the kingdom, or not? And so it's it's this thing that causes a distinction. He used parables in order to accomplish this differentiation. Unbelievers would hear the parables and misconstrue the real intent of what Jesus was saying. Believers would hear them and understand their message and gain insight into the reality and the nature of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. Then comes a citation from Isaiah. From Isaiah 6, chapter chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. What's going on in Isaiah 6? It's the call of Isaiah. He sees God high and lifted up, exalted, sitting on a throne, kingdom overtones to it. The the seraphim are flying about, and all they say is, holy, holy, holy. In that context, Isaiah says, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. God has to cleanse his lips. He has to remove his iniquity. He has to atone for his sin. And then he commissions Isaiah to go and tell the people. And that's what we have in verses 9 and 10. This commissioning of Isaiah to go and speak. And you'd think he would say, okay, now Isaiah, I want you to go and tell the people plainly and clearly this is what's going to happen. That as we look at Isaiah 6, which is quoted here by Jesus in Matthew 13, Isaiah has a very strange kind of a ministry. He has a threefold ministry and message. He was, first of all, literally to make the hearts of the people fat in Hebrew, from Isaiah, or thick. Here it's translated as callous. Now, those of you who study medicine, I, even less than David, know nothing about medicine. And so a calloused heart, I can't think that that's a good thing. (laughs) If that muscle starts to get callous, it doesn't function. But that was the intention God wanted Isaiah to do. Go and make the hearts of the people callous, fat. He's to make their ears dull, literally hard of hearing. So they hear, they have the constant exposure to the Word of God, but they don't understand it. And he's to cause their eyes to close or to become blind to the realities of the coming judgment. In other words, Isaiah 
was to tell the people about the coming judgment, but there would be no response. They would simply continue in their sin until that judgment came. The word translated in the NIV in Matthew 13, 15 with the word otherwise is literally the word lest. It conveys the sense that if the people had really heard the message of Isaiah and by way of implication the message of Jesus, if they had really heard it and understood the implications and the demands of that message and turned back to God, which is an Old Testament way of saying repented and believed, then God would have healed them. He would have restored them. He would have brought them to wholeness again, bringing salvation. But they didn't do that. And the message of Isaiah was to harden their hearts against that so that they would be judged by him. To be sure, there are glorious descriptions of the coming restoration in the book of Isaiah. But his message was basically one of warning of the people of the coming judgment unless they repented for their sin. And with that citation of Isaiah, Jesus is saying that what he is doing, specifically speaking in parables, is a fulfillment of that prophecy of Isaiah. He's doing the same thing that Isaiah was to do, namely speak the word of God to warn of the coming judgment. The people would see what he was doing, hear what he was saying, but not turn back, not repent. They would not really hear, nor would the majority truly understand his message and turn in faith and repentance back to God for salvation. Like Isaiah, Jesus would sow the seed of the word of God, the word of the kingdom, and yet see little fruit in response. In fact, they would crucify him. Most would reject his word and the kingdom that he sought to establish. Jesus makes use of parables because they serve both to veil the realities of the kingdom from those who had hardened their hearts in unbelief and to reveal those same truths to those who did repent and believe. Parables serve to make the hearts of the people calloused, their ears hard of hearing, and their eyes blind. They think they have heard. They think they have understood but they haven't because their hearts are not affected by it. In this way, as with the message of Isaiah, parables serve as a message of judgment on those whose hearts had been hardened in unbelief. But Jesus goes on in verses 13 and 16 about the ble- and speaks of the blessed privilege. He expresses a very positive reason for speaking in parables. This privilege of those who hear the message of the parables in his day and believe. But once again, Christ makes a contrast or a differentiation between two categories of people, the present hearers of parables and those of the Old Testament. We'll look at these in reverse order. First of all, the people of God in the past. It consists of two subgroups, prophets who were to speak God's word and people who had, God had made righteous. In other words, believers in an Old Testament sense. Both of these groups of Old Testament people long to see the day of the coming of the Messiah and of the kingdom of God, which he would usher in. They saw it from afar, veiled, only dimly, in images and promises, and they wished with every fiber of their being 
by faith that they would see those promises actually become reality, but they never did. They just looked by faith to the day that that would happen, and they longed for it. And the way that Jesus expresses it here, you can almost feel the ache and the pain that these godly believers endured as they longed for and looked forward to the time of Christ's appearing. They longed to see the day when God's righteous kingdom would be restored and the reign, and he would reign supreme. The day when he would restore all things and full salvation would finally be theirs. The day when they would be restored to fellowship with their creator and king. But the point that Jesus is making is that they never saw that day. But the hearers of the parables were living it, and so are we. Over against the people of the Old Testament, Jesus talks about the present hearers of the parables and pronounces their eyes and ears blessed. The word that he uses throughout the Sermon on the Mount, meaning happy, privileged, favored. They're not happy and privileged and favored because of what they had done, not their efforts, not their piety, not their deep spiritual insight. Rather, it was the fact that they were there and seeing with their eyes, hearing with their ears the reality that the king had come. Something we take for granted. The people of the Old Testament never had. And they longed for it. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you because it's come. It's here. It's finally broken in. Rejoice. So there's a good reason that Jesus spoke in parables. Not just to differentiate and make distinctions and bring judgment. But there's a blessedness to us. So now let's conclude by looking at the explanation that Jesus gives for this parable. In verses 18 through 23. He lastly returns to the parable and interprets it for his disciples and us. But before we get to the specifics of Christ's interpretation, there are several general matters that we have to note about this parable. First of all, there are two common elements, if you've noticed, as you go through this parable. The same sower, the same seed. They remain the same throughout the whole parable. It's not a different sower, it's not different seed. The differentiation takes place in the different kinds of soil. And there are four different kinds of soil. The seed is the word of the kingdom, Matthew tells us in verse 18. Or the secrets of the kingdom of heaven in verse 11. Or simply the word. In other words, this seed is God's word that's going out. We're not told who the sower is. That might be Jesus, it might be the disciples, it might even be us. As we sow the seed of the word of God. There are four different soils or responses to the Word of God, four kinds of people, four kinds of human hearts. Only one response is fruitful. The other three end in fruitlessness. This is a list that's not intended to be comprehensive, but rather representative. There could be other reasons why we don't respond in faith to the Word of God, but these that are provided here show us significant ways which the Word of God enters our lives but does not produce fruit. Fifthly, the central message of the parable is that the kingdom of God has come into the world and will be received by some but rejected by others. The kingdom will have only partial success and that success depends on the response of human hearts. 
And that understanding of this parable stands in sharp contrast with the Jewish understanding of the day. They, drawing largely on the book of Daniel, saw the coming of the kingdom with power and glory, where the God would come and crush the nations, and all the nations would serve Israel. It would be a glorious time. But Jesus knew he's coming to die on a cross, to take the judgment that his people deserved. So the coming of the kingdom doesn't mean glory. And so the parables are used to express this delayed coming of the kingdom, and yet a coming nonetheless. Sixthly, the emphasis in this parable is not on the harvest, as it is in the next parable that will follow in the same chapter. Rather, it's on the sowing. It's about sowing the seed of the Word of God. Not harvesting, but sowing the seed with a full knowledge that there's going to be different responses as you sow that seed. And finally, as we look at this parable, we have to understand there are no imperatives here. This is not a list of things that you are to do. It doesn't say, now, remove the rocks, get rid of the weeds, cultivate your soil so that it's really fruitful. It doesn't say those things. There's no imperative. It's about the kingdom and the different responses to the kingdom. The parable-like wisdom literature of the Old Testament leaves us with a question, a question which only we can answer ourselves. The question is, what kind of soil am I? How do I respond to the seed of the word of the kingdom? Now we're going to take a look at these four different soils or responses. We're going to look at the kind of soil, the cause of the response or lack thereof, and the ultimate outcome. First of all, the seed on the path, verse 19. This is the seed sown on the path, the hard-packed earth trampled by the commerce of everyday life, impervious to any kind of penetration by a seed sown on it. This kind of soil represents those who hear the message of the kingdom but don't understand it. The cause of this lack of response is that the evil one comes and snatches away the seed sown into the hearts of those people that hear this message. Satan will not idly sit by and allow the word of God to take root in your life. That's not in his game plan. And he has an arsenal of ways to snatch the word of God from your heart. And each one of those ways is tailored to your own specific personality and background. So you have to ask, what way does the evil one use to snatch the word from your heart? I can't answer that. You have to answer that. The outcome here is that there's, there's no, no fruit. The seed doesn't even germinate. So again, we're left with a question. How much fruit do you see in your life as a result of hearing the word of God? Or has the evil one snatched it away before it could bear fruit? Then is the soil on the, the seed that's sown on rocky soil. This is the seed sown on rocky ground that people receive immediately and rejoice at it with great joy. There's an appearance of real life and growth. However, because this seed is trying to grow in rocky soil, the roots are prevented from developing 
and without roots going deep into the soil, the plant will not last. So when troubles or persecution come, troubles and persecution because of the word, these people fall away quickly. They wither and die. There are numerous forms of trouble and persecution which we might be confronted with in our lives in response to, or as a result of our joyful response to the Word of God. Some are harsh and life-threatening, such as those faced by believers in the persecuted church. Others are far more subtle and refined, but nonetheless endangering to the seed of the Word of God sown into our hearts. They are the rocks which prevent roots from sinking down deep into the word which would sustain life spiritually. So the question here is, what rocks are there in your life which are keeping you from developing roots into the word of God? Here again, the outcome is there's no fruit. Just as it looks like the seed is growing well, it withers away and dies. You ever had that happen to you? You hear the gospel... And you want to simply explode with joy at the wonder of God's grace for you. Then something happens. The joy goes. The fruit goes. We need to be careful about the rocky soil in our lives. The next kind of soil is that that's, thrown, that's sown amongst thorns, amongst harmful weeds. The soil represents someone who hears the word of God sown into their hearts and they begin to grow spiritually. Again, it looks good. However, the weeds begin to take over and they choke out the life of a plant. And Jesus mentions two particularly noxious, two kinds of noxious weeds here. The first is the worries of this life. He's not saying that you shouldn't be concerned about the realities of living. But rather this refers to the cares of life taking priority. It's a description of someone more concerned with this life than with God's word and his kingdom. It's a question of priority. The second weed is the deceitfulness of wealth. While trouble and persecution can choke out the word of God in our lives and cut it off, also excess, abundance, prosperity, and the feigned self-reliance that we draw from those things can be equally life-threatening, choking out the life of the seed of the Word of God sown in our hearts. It's a picture of someone who is more interested in ease and wealth, the next raise, a better house, more and more and more and more than they are of seeing the Word of God sink deep into their lives and produce fruit. Again here, there's no fruit The weeds take over and the life of the seed is simply choked out. Here the question you have to ask yourself is what weeds are growing in my life that threaten to choke out the word of God? What is it in your life that has a higher priority than the word of God and his kingdom? As with weeds in a garden, it's far easier to remove weeds when they're small before they have grown and choke out and overwhelm the wanted plant. Also, as with gardening, you don't have to plant weed seeds. They're there all by themselves because of our sinful nature. Weeding is not a one-off task, but is an ongoing thing. 
So are there weeds in your life that threaten to choke off the Word of God? That's what Jesus is asking. Finally, there's the good soil. I like a parable that ends on a good note. There's good soil, and this good soil produces fruit. That's the point. Not whether it's 100, 60, or 30, because in some of them, the Gospels, it's reversed that order, and it's not the diminishing kind of a thing from 100 down to 60, down to 6 to 30. The fact is that there's an abundance of fruit there. The seed is sown, and it produces fruit. And it's simply that the Word of God produces that fruit. It's not because these people are better. It's not because they're more disciplined. It's not because they've done certain things. This is what the Word of God does. The message of this parable is not that we have to work to produce this level of fruit through our own efforts. It's a description of God's grace producing fruit in our lives. God's Word will not return void, but will accomplish what He desires. Isaiah fifty-five eleven. And he desires that his word produce fruit in our lives. Changes that demonstrate that his word is remaking us by his grace. Priorities which reflect the truths of scripture rather than the priorities of the world around us. Changes where every area of life is being brought under his kingdom authority and rule. The people described here have understood the word of God. They've understood it to the point that fruit is produced in their lives in abundance. Some hundred, some sixty, some thirty. The question we have to ask ourselves here is, do I see this kind of fruit in my life? Is there a fruit at all? Or do I enjoy hearing the word of God week in, week out in this congregation? But there's no reality. There's no fruit in my life. The Word of God is designed to produce fruit in your life. That's why God sows that seed into your hearts. Not just so that you can have an acoustic pleasure, but so that your life would be changed, that you would become like Him, that you would be living testimonies of the grace of God. It's my prayer that each of you would be good soil and that you would respond with much fruit in your life to the Word of God preached week in, week out. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would indeed produce the fruit that you desire in our lives. That you would change us, that you would remake us. That we would put aside the things that would choke out your word. That would alter our priorities away from your word. Oh, how we love your word. May it produce fruit in our lives to the praise of the glory of your grace. We ask it in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org 
Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.